Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for being here uh, today. I know you'd, you'd probably rather be out in the in the drizzly rain. No, actually, we're th thinking if uh, if this had been last week with the uh, with the sun and the fallish weather, we might not have got so many people. So we're pleased to see uh, uh, all of you on the on the webinar today. This is the the second in our series from this uh, from this fall. Um, we ran a couple one a couple weeks ago, and this is the second one that we wanted to get in right before the presidential election. I'm I'm pumped for the discussion today. Uh, not only because we uh, we did a preview call the other day and went over you know kind of the flow of the conversation, but but uh, I you know representing the World Trade Center Buffalo Niagara uh, have been watching the you know the the national rhetoric on pol on, on the presidential campaigns, uh, the debates, uh, all the different information and, and uh, insights coming out, and I'm sitting through each debate waiting to hear the question on trade policy. They have not come in any of the debates so far. We, we in the fir very first debate when the two candidates were talking over each other, they talked about China a little bit, I think. Um, but other than that, we really have not talked about trade in the debate. So, um, as, as we were setting this up, we said let's let's take take the bull by the horns and and we'll talk about trade ourselves and get the information out to to our stakeholders who who care about it. So um, we appreciate our uh, the three speakers we have today. Doug Kennedy uh, is the RBC Managing Director at the Center for Global Enterprise, the Schulich School of Business with York University. Uh, Jack O'Donnell, who's with O'Donnell and Associates, and Chelsea Penrod Hickman, who's with Winning Strategies Washington. Um, we uh, very thrilled that all of you offered your, your time and expertise to this conversation, and uh, we're looking forward to digging in. Uh, let me, um, as far as uh, we'll get right into it, but as far as uh, uh, ground rules for the uh, or housekeeping for the for for the conversation today, we don't for these webinars wait till the end for Q and A. So if you have a question throughout the program, uh, go ahead and type it in the chat box. Um, you can do it one of two ways. There's a little button there that says everyone, or you can you can uh, send it to me privately if, if, if you don't necessarily want your name attached to the question. We understand. Um, we uh, we'll, we'll, we'll work it right into the conversation instead of, uh, instead of uh, waiting for the end. So plan on going about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes today. Uh, and we're looking forward to uh, the dialogue and to seeing what your questions are and to hearing from our from our panelists. So thank you again for being here. With that, what I'd like to do is actually just give our panelists 90 seconds, two minutes to, to introduce yourself uh, and, and you know, lay a little context for, uh, for uh, why, we have, why we invited you to this conversation. And maybe, maybe let's go ladies first, Chelsea. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Um, I am based in Washington, DC, and I've been working in and around the federal government um, for about 20 years now. I originally um, came to Washington like a lot of people do and thought that I would stay for a year and then go and you know do something else, but here I still am. So I spent 10 years on Capitol Hill in both the House and the Senate. And um, I'm now a partner at Winning Strategies Washington, which is a boutique lobbying firm, like I said, based in DC. And we have a wide array of clients, um, everything from higher education to healthcare, defense, um, you name it, we, we work on the issue. And um, trade has become an issue for almost every client that we work with, whether it's you know, a pharmaceutical importer, whether it's you know, um, an education institution that has um, interest in visas or other, other issues like that, or even just some of our companies that are trying to buy and sell goods. 
trade has become a top priority for a number of our clients. And so I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't have expected that it would affect quite so many, but, but that's why I'm here today is to kind of talk about what I've worked on and what I've seen and, you know, how I see that going forward. So I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Thanks, Chelsea. Thanks for being here. Jack, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Jack O'Donnell. I'm the managing partner at O'Donnell and Associates. We're a New York-based uh, government affairs lobbying firm. Um, like uh, Winning Strategies, we represent people across the board, Fortune 500 companies, um, small nonprofits, uh, kind of everyone in between. Um, we've done um, a fair amount of work around uh, trade. Um, we do represent the Niagara Falls Bridge Commission, so we've been very involved there. Um, and in the past, we did some work for the province of Ontario and the province of Quebec around some by New York um, provisions in, in, in New York State. Um, we're very familiar with all uh, how important trade is to, to, to upstate New York, to all of New York, to southern Ontario, uh, and the work that the World Trade Center does. And i uh, excited to be part of this conversation. Thanks, Jack. We appreciate you being here. And Douglas, we're thrilled to have you here, to, uh, especially uh, having sat with you, you know, before the, before the webinar started to, to kind of hear your thoughts on some things. So I uh, appreciate you bringing the, uh, taking on the Canadian point of view all by yourself. <laughs> and uh, if you could let us know a little bit about you. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a pleasure to uh, be <clears throat> work with Craig and his team at the World Trade Center, Buffalo, Niagara. Uh, and I appreciate everybody sharing their time with us this afternoon. Um, I am uh, the managing director of the Center for Global Enterprise. We are a combination think tank uh, policy group based at the uh, University of uh, York University. Our mandate is very simply to enable Canadian companies to reach their full potential through engagement with international markets. Um, we have a thought leadership side with the Schulich uh, Business School Academics. We research issues in international trade, um, international business, uh, big picture demographics, finance, and so on. Then there's the other side where we get involved with the policy side, both the provincial level, local level, and federal level, um, to support them and try and inform their decision making. We also run programs uh, or vet programs, both in terms of uh, uh, grant applications, uh, as well as uh, executive education and uh, education in the business school area. Um, we are a not-for-profit and supported by the, both the public sector, the Canadian federal government, as well as the private sector, which is why RBC is tagged my name. That's one of the Canadian banks here. And I'm pleased to uh, get involved. Thanks so much, Doug. Um, let, me, let me start, uh, and Jack, maybe I could start with you. Before we, we, we dig into the candidates' platforms and, and where they stand on the, the various trade issues that we care about, let's talk about what I referenced in my intro, which is, uh, trade has taken a, a kind of a backseat to a number of, uh, let's say, more sensational issues that are out there right now. What, what do you think is the significance of that? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question, Craig. And I, I, I think you framed it well, right? Um, everything in some ways has, has taken a backseat um, to the coronavirus and the response and the impact on the community. Um, but I do think sort of underlying um, those conversations, you know, there's a fair amount going on around the trade conversation, right? I think that's much more 
less in a state like New York, who we have a pretty good idea um, who New York's electoral votes are gonna go to. Um, but when you talk to folks in Ohio, especially in Michigan, um, I do think they're seeing a lot more sort of targeted trade rhetoric um, and a, a bit of a trade conversation, right? We, we also saw the first presidential debate. It, it's, uh, if it can be called that, I'm not sure that there are really any policy um, issues that are being talked about substantively. Um, but I do think, you know, it underlies, especially a lot of the rhetoric that the president is using, right? He talks about, um, he talked yesterday about dishwashers. He talked about um, manufacturing and sort of what that means. And so I do think he's kind of leaning into it. And, and we've certainly seen in Washington as the conversations around the stimulus go, there've been really um, a lot of push, especially on the Republican side, to make sure that there's some subsidies uh, for farmers in some of these states that have been hurt by some of the trade. Um, maybe Chelsea can tell us more about that too. Chelsea, let's let's go with Chelsea. What, what you know? What what is the significance of the the lack of dialogue on, on trade right now? Sure, um, and I appreciate um, um, Ashik is not if she doesn't mute me. I know that that's something. If we get into it too hot, then they will get muted. But. Um, <laughs> I think to Jack's point, I agree with everything Jack said. And the other the other point that I would make is trade hasn't been its own separate issue because it's so connected to a lot of the other issues that are that are kind of the hot topics of the day. So, for example, um, one of um, Joe Biden's big platforms is labor and how is how are labor rates going to be affected? He wants to have a cabinet level working group focused specifically on labor. And that's, that has huge implications for trade. How is, tr how is that going to affect what, you know, the United States brings in, what it doesn't? And for the, you know, what Jack said about the subsidies, I think we're really grappling in Washington with the fallout of the aggressive use of the Section 301 and 232 um, tariffs in terms of, you know, the cost and the impact on American companies. But it's also... A little bit strange when you look at USMCA and some of the other things that are going on and putting in place tariffs on our neighbors, right, on our neighbors and allies. Um, steel tariffs are kind of an on again, off again thing with with our friends in Canada. And so I think the economic impact of that has been significant. And I think that a lot of the discussion about, you know, whether it's aid to farmers, whether it's, you know, re retraining for for workers, that's really code for how are we going to deal with trade and what do we anticipate going forward? Thanks, Chelsea. And Doug, Chelsea mentioned the, the tariffs and obviously Canadian companies are, are watching the election very closely um, because a lot of what's happened over the past four years has been directly associated with the, the policies of, of President Trump. So are you, are you getting the information that you need on trade? Do you know what's coming? Um, well, again, I'm speaking for myself. I don't reflect uh, any official view, but um, I mean, the, the big thing is that we don't really differentiate too much. We look at the trade policies of either party. And while there's differences in emphasis uh, on energy trade, for example, we expect that USMCA will form the basis, the rules basis, but there's always going to be frictions and things that come up. Um, and we are prepared for that. The difference, I think, between Canada and the United States is that trade is about one third 
of the Canadian GDP in terms of scale. Um, it's about 26% in the States. United States top three trading partners all account for 14, 13 to 14% of their international trade. Canada, it's about 75%, 70 to 75% of the States, which means that how this election goes is going to have an impact on about 20% of the Canadian economy. So obviously we're paying very, very close attention to what's going on south of the border. So Chelsea, let me let me start with you there. You know, there, there shouldn't be too much guessing in how either the candidates will move forward. We had eight years with Vice President Biden in the Obama administration. We've had four years with President Trump. Do you think we can get a good sense of what's upcoming based on what we've seen the last 12 years? Yeah, I think that there's there's a lot that we can learn, but there have been a couple of, I think, significant changes, one of which is the coronavirus pandemic and, and the umbrella that that creates for all kinds of policymaking that may or may not be directly related. And one of the things that you're seeing out of this is, is the, um, a real focus on Buy American. The president has issued a, an executive order on um, Buy American related to pharmaceuticals and um, key ingredients, you know, PPE, that sort of thing. So that was a policy goal, I think, that existed for the president before, but he's using kind of the auspices of the coronavirus to say, look, this is the time to do it. So I think that you're going to see, you're going to see a lot of um, opportunities, you know, that arise because of that to advance those, those priorities. And I think it's, it's not insignificant to, to say, you know, Ambassador Lighthizer, the current um, U.S. Trade Representative in the United States, he, he has upended trade policy pretty significantly in the United States. He is, um, he is very, he's a smart guy and he, and he is very um, convinced that what he's, what he's doing is the right thing and the president listens to him. And so when you look at these, you know, section 301 investigations or 232 or what USMCA, whatever it is, he has very specific um America-centric goals and views. And there's a level of isolationism that comes with that. I think on um, the Biden side, there's there's probably less difference between the two than you might think. Um, President, uh, Vice President Biden has, again, interest in US steel workers and labor. And, you know, th there's a lot to be said for this, you know, by American, there's a lot of worry. Oh no, what if, you know, India shuts down? What if, you know, China cuts off our supply of this, but get what gets caught up in that is all of our other trade partners too. So it's not just, you know, the big bad China or India, it's, well, we shouldn't be buying anything from anywhere. And that's, I think the balance that you're going to have to, that you're going to have to strike. And I don't think necessarily that's been done successfully by the Trump administration, but how a Biden administration would, would balance that. I'd be interested in, in Jack's view, but I think that's a challenge that they're going to have to face that they ha didn't have in place before. And Jack, what do you what do you think we can take from the last twelve years? Yeah, um, I, I think Chelsea nailed some of it on the head. But I I think while um, you're going to see Joe Biden in some ways continue a lot of what the Obama administration did, um, Chelsea talked about one of the biggest things that changed, and this is also I think a significant difference um, between how Joe Biden sees himself and how Barack Obama saw himself, um, which is Joe Biden sees himself as blue collar Joe. 
Um, and I think the, the 2016 election results um, also dictated, you know, that the Democratic Party in 2018 and now in 2020 is a lot more focused on, um, you know, blue collar workers um, and sort of what that looks like, right? Um, Chelsea mentioned steel workers, you know, firemen, uh, operating engineers, carpenter, you know, all these folks um, and sort of what that looks like. Um, and, you know, you saw in the, the Democratic National Committee's um, position on trade at the convention this year starts with, we're not doing anything that's not worker focused, right? So I think you'll see a little more of that. I, and, and I also think one of the things that, you know, sort of underlies a lot of what Chelsea said is that I think on China, there may not be as much distance between these two candidates as there is on a lot of other things. Um, but I think significantly, um, the, the, a potential Biden administration one would probably be um, a bit more uh, thoughtful in its approach, right? They're going to want to have a process and these people speak to it and they'll have trial balloons and kind of work through it as opposed to um, the president's negotiating stance and, and how quickly that can change. And then I think the other thing you're going to see a lot of, and this is what we saw, this will be the continuation of what the Obama administration did, but, you know, using trade and trade alliances um, as an opportunity to partner with our friends, our allies to police the world um, and have some, you know, have some interconnectedness, right? And that was the underlying goal of TPP. Um, but you're going to see more of that kind of um, collaborative approach. And, and Doug, you've been watching two administrations in a row now and, and getting ready for what's next. What, what, are, what are you seeing that's a takeaway from the last 12 years that we can, let's say, count on for, for going forward? I mean, I don't see, I mean, the, obviously the two parties have differences in terms of what they're looking to uh, promote. So for example, to use a very simple example, Canada's largest export to the United States is uh, mineral fuels, it's oil and, and gas. Um, President Trump and his administration, very, very keen on supporting that on fracking in the United States and so on. Whereas the Democratic Party, uh, at least stated, are, are more uh, Paris Accord, they might rejoin the Paris Accord, not quite as friendly to oil and gas. Um, and obviously how that affects the US economy, you know, how those things play out, are going to affect trade by just by virtue of how the, the impact of the economy is. I think the one thing that, that we'll see, hopefully, is depending on the, on the administration, I think it'll be a less differences in terms of trade policy, but I think the, on the diplomatic side, how they approach trade policy uh, could be different. Um, with the continuation of the Republican regime, another four years of, of Trump, it'll be kind of what we're used to, you know, overnight shocks uh, by tweet, you know, aluminum tariffs are coming back in, um, you know, thou shalt not deal with Huawei um, and, and so on and so forth. Whereas I think under a Biden administration, uh, I think there is a bit more multilateral approach. So I, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, Paris Accord rejoining that and working in a multilateral way, as opposed to the U.S. standing on its own. 
CPTPP is what we refer to it now, but it's the old TPP that the US dropped out of. Um, I could see uh, an effort of going back into it because it is one of the ways that uh, the markets that are involved, and there's a lot of Southeast Asian markets, a lot of South American markets that are part of that agreement, that will allow them to reduce their reliance or their vulnerability to uh, the economy of China. And again, that's a long-term US interest. It's just that the uh, Republican administration pursued it unilaterally. And I think that a Biden administration may be more inclined to work multilaterally. Hey, Doug, let me come right back to you. Um, we're talking about trade agreements. Let's, let's talk a little bit about USMCA, uh, which, which came into effect in the middle of COVID. Companies were not necessarily focused on it. They were focused on staying open and uh, keeping their employees safe and, and uh, you know, uh, figuring out what the future was going to look like. And, and now we've got this agreement in place. How, how USMCA will go, you know, obviously it's, it was uh, President Trump's baby. So we, we kind of have an idea what it means to him going forward. Although as Chelsea pointed out, there seems to be some sporadic, uh, um, I don't know, whims, I guess is the right word when it comes to tariffs and things. So um, but with, uh, uh, with, a, with a Biden administration, too, how is USMCA playing into all of this? I, I mean, the agreement we call new NAFTA up here um, is um, essentially needed to be modified, okay? And, and where uh, the modifications took place, all to the good. Um, but the U.S. administration tends to be driven by uh, in domestic politics, and um, it's the senior partner. You know, the three countries is by far the, the largest economy, the senior partner. So that when it comes to aircraft or it comes to steel or it comes to wood or whatever, if there is an issue in an important political segment in the United States, NAFTA or no NAFTA, we have learned that it's gonna come up. There's gonna be friction, there's gonna be issues that'll have to be resolved, hopefully within NAFTA, but if necessary, outside of NAFTA. Um, that would be the, 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 probably the biggest point. Um, I guess the other thing is that perhaps between the two administrations that, um, you'll have fewer of these midnight shocks. Um, that would be, I think be very, very important because obviously reliability and resilience of supply chains is extremely important. And to use a pandemic example, um, early in the early days, there was a shortage of masks in the United States. Canada had a Canadian government and health system had a contract with uh, 3M and a couple of other suppliers for large shipments of masks. And overnight, the president just said, no, we're not going to export it. It's going to be used here domestically. We're going to take that over. Um, obviously causing an issue. You know, we're supposed to be an ally. We're supposed to be extremely highly integrated. And... Um, in the same was with tariffs on steel and aluminum. You know, Canada as a, as a security threat to the United States. The only threat really there is to a segment of uh, U.S. industry um, where we're competitive. And it's, it's interesting to note that at least in aluminum, the U.S. industry is all foreign-owned. There aren't any major U.S. aluminum manufacturers anymore. So you're basically talking about transplant plants in the United States. So that certainty, that reliability on the diplomatic side, I think is something that we would definitely welcome. 
Jack, uh, your thoughts on, on USMCA in the midst of everything? Yeah, um, I, I think Doug said a lot of it, it well. I mean, I, I will also, um, wearing the, the, the Democratic hat here, you know, while the president gets or should get and deserves most of the credit for getting that deal done, right, big parts of it were, you know, those negotiations began under Obama. Um, and the Obama-Biden administration and, and as part of the TPP. But again, I, I, I think um, Doug hit it well that a lot of this is going to be driven by domestic politics. And I think, um, you know, hopefully the new agreement provides some, some more stability. Um, we do think um, underlying the presidential election, obviously, is the um, control of the, the U.S. Senate. Um, we've heard from New York's own Senator Chuck Schumer about trying to, if they take the majority, rein in the ability of the president to declare those um, emergencies um, and, and sort of unilaterally declare the tariffs and, and kind of rolling back that power. Um, so I think that's sort of out there as a, a, as a subtext here. Um, but it'll be kind of interesting to see how that goes. And, and again, I'll just reiterate that the Biden administration's commitment um, to workers and, and looking at that piece. And Tulsi, let me give you a shout at USMCA too. Um, and maybe um, because as Jack pointed out that, uh, um, you know, President Trump's carrying a banner for it, but there was, there was, a, there was definitely um, a lot of input from both sides of the aisle in that, in that final agreement. Um, so I want to get your take on that, but uh, maybe talk about uh, uh, how Mexico factors into it a little bit too, going into the upcoming election. Yeah, it's it's one of the few um, bright spots of bipartisanship over the last four years. There is there was there was a lot of credit to be taken, and a lot of people reached up and took it. Right, everyone from um, everyone touted what they got. Right, oh, and we we made the worker protections stronger. You know, House Democrats talk about that, and. House Republicans talk about, and look, we opened these new markets and there's all these different, there's all these different people kind of taking credit for that. And that's an, it's an interesting kind of dynamic because, you know, especially on the Republican side, you know, NAFTA is kind of a bad word. And so when you're talking about NAFTA 2.0, so it, it's, it's really striking that, that there is bipartisan, that this was a bipartisan effort and that both sides are taking credit. I think that's, that's one thing I would look at. On the Mexico side, I think, one of the things that the pandemic has um, made clear too is there is there is a saturation, if you will, in in some of the the places in Asia where a lot of a lot of the manufacturing and production and that sort of thing has been offshored. And one of the things that Republicans and Democrats are talking about is, well, wait a minute, what about Mexico? There's, you know, there's abundant labor, there's all these, there's all these opportunities. And so I think Mexico has an opportunity here um, to really thrive if, if, you know, under the right circumstances. And one of the factors I think that's going to make a big difference is, you know, Joe Biden served for decades on the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate. And he sat um, as part of, you know, all kinds of different negotiations and different things like that. He, he brings a completely different view to this than, than President Trump. He just does. And having that, having that more worldview, who are our allies, who are our closest allies, that sort of thing, he thinks in those terms in a way that um, President Trump just doesn't. 
And so I would say, you know, even though, you know, agreed with everything that Jack said about, you know, the workers making sure that there are those protections and that sort of thing. I think he's also going to be really anxious to kind of um, re, you know, reestablish our standing in not only in the hemisphere, in the, you know, in this part of the world, but across the, across the country. And that's a place to start is, you know, with these closest allies. So I would think under a, you know, under either a Biden or a Trump administration, there would be continued, you know, how can I take credit for this? It just might be a little bit different. Chelsea, let me stick with you. Uh, and I was going to ask something and then, and then uh, we got a question in the, in the chat uh, along the same lines too. Um, we, we talked about TPP briefly, but I, I want to get into uh, TPP and other, um, other um, trade agreements, specifically uh, multilateral trade agreements. Do you see a, a, a shift there? Again, I don't know that we've heard specifically. We know how President Trump feels. Where's, um, where, do you, where do you suppose that the uh, Biden administration might end up on those? I mean, I think, I think again, just thinking of um, Biden's history, background, his interests, and the fact that he served for so long on that foreign affairs committee, he considers himself a foreign affairs expert. And his, um, so I think his approach to that, the multilateral approach just is more in keeping, I think, with who, with who he sees himself as, right? And who he sees the United States, right? The United States is a leader, but not a dictator. And so I think the approach that we've seen with, um, with the Trump administration has been very America-centric, you know, America's the best and everybody, you know, should be lucky enough to do business with us. Whereas I think a, um, a Biden administration would look at it a little bit more pragmatically. What, what can we gain from all these different pieces that, that exist out there? So I would imagine a, a more multilateral approach where it's possible, but you also have that factor that Jack mentioned with, you know, are they, is there going to be an effort to rein in the president's um, authority to negotiate? And is, are there going to be changes on that front that make it a little bit different, difficult for him to maybe be as expansive as he would like to be? Doug, let me pitch the um, trade agreement question to you because I, I learned recently and we talked about it the other day that uh, Canada has more trade agreements than any country on the, on the planet. But in USMCA, now there's some rules about uh, uh, the, the three partners' abilities to sign on to new trade agreements. How, how does that affect, uh, you know, I guess the question is, if President Trump, say Canada believes that he's misbehaving with the tariffs, uh, how, what's the appetite for saying, okay, whether we're going to, then we're going to trade with all these other partners that we have. What's, what's the process? Well, I mean, that, that's, that's been a, uh, a thread through Canadian, in the Canadian economy for a long, long time. Um, uh, some of your viewers may not know it, but um, there has, there was a, there has, there is a ministry within the federal government with a cabinet minister representation, specifically looking at trade diversification. The government has a 1.5 million Canadian dollar program to encourage Canadian companies, one, to engage globally in general, but more specifically outside of the North America. Um, again, simply because we have all our eggs uh, traditionally in the one US basket. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a definite issue for us. 
but it gets back to the sort of the pattern of the economy. We're, we supply about half of your total petroleum imports. Uh, the flip side, of course, is that the U.S. is by far our biggest supplier of oil. It just happens to be geographically mixed, uh, central and west. It's we're exporting to you on the east coast, Quebec, and over. It's U.S. pipelines running north into Canada. Um, you're not going to be able to change that. I think that for in basic trade, the bigger question for us is how quickly the U.S. is going to recover from the pandemic. How, how soon is demand going to come back? That's going to have the biggest short-term impact on Canadian trade with the United States. Uh, you know, we, we tend to focus on goods, but the other important thing is services. Um, the U.S. runs uh, traditionally a very, well, I guess in 2018, something in the region of a 35, 36 billion dollar surplus in service exports. Well, if Canadians can't travel down to Florida for their winters or go to Hawaii, um, that's going to be a, a real issue affecting trade. Um, so I think the, the agreements are, are less important. And Canada doesn't have the most trade agreements in the world, but we are the uniquely the only G7 member that has a free trade agreement with every other G7 uh, member, excluding the UK once they drop out of uh, uh, the EU. Jack, I don't want to leave uh, TPP and trade agreements uh, without giving you a shot at it. Do you, do you have anything to add to those? Yeah, I mean, I just echo uh, my colleagues here, but I do think maybe we'll see less grand, you know, like uh, grand agreements like TPP and more of the sort of individual um, uh, diplomacy kind of agreements and trade trips and, and some of that stuff. And, and I do just want to pick up one of the other um, things that I, I'm watching that I think will be very interesting. He mentioned um, the UK. You know, I, I was on a call this morning with the Irish uh, minister, new minister for um, Ireland's new minister for dysphoria. And he was talking about Joe Biden's longtime commitment to the Northern Ireland peace process and sort of where that fits into the whole Brexit and, you know, being willing to do a deal um, with the UK. And, and sort of, again, you've got those contrasts. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how um, how a Joe, potential Joe Biden administration works through them. Let me get, I want to get back to the, the Bi-American piece. Um, and maybe Chelsea, I'll start with you. We, we, we had a webinar two weeks ago, our, our 21, 2021 economic forecast. And, and our economist, who's Mark Chandler, from, uh, that we work with for, from uh, Bannockburn, talked, he talked about economic nationalism. Um, which is interesting because he didn't talk about it just from the perspective of the U.S. or Canada, but around the world, almost as if President Trump economic nationalism has caused a, a trend around the world. Um, so you watch the first debate, and one of the few points that did make it through was that uh, uh, Vice President Biden, it, when that conversation was on the table, almost outdid him on economic, almost outdid the president on economic nationalism. So, so where. Where, where is this leading and how is the, the world's response to it affecting it? Yeah. Who loves America more? That's right. That's the competition yeah. that they're having right now. It's a really interesting part of, of the, the kind of the fabric of this campaign, especially knowing that who, whether it's a second Trump administration or first Biden administration, the biggest issue on the table is going to be economic recovery. How do we, how do we now 
get to, you know, whatever our post COVID life looks like, or, you know, whatever that is. And there is a lot of that by American rhetoric that I think is, is intended for those audiences who are really worried about jobs and are, are the, is the unemployment rate going to go down? Am, are, am I going to be able to find a job? That sort of thing. So there's a real focus on by American from that perspective, but there in reality, the pandemic has exposed some real challenges with our, with the way that we buy and store goods. You know, I talked earlier about the um, executive order on um, pharmaceuticals in particular. And over time that, you know, those, those um, key starting materials and the API and other things that go into active, the active pharmaceutical ingredients, they've just slowly gone, you know, mostly to China and other places, but that doesn't come back overnight. And so I think that the Buy American, um, the Buy American kind of mantra is going to, it's going to cost a lot of money to do it. And I think part of, part of what the Trump administration has tried to put in place are huge government investments in making that happen, right? So is it going to be a, you know, Biden one-ups and continues those investments or turns a different direction? I think that President Trump has put a lot of money where his mouth is on, on actually making investments. But there is the, um, there's the question of, okay, how many of those are, you know, are going to be sustainable in the long term, and how, and what's really the impact going to be? And we thought we needed all these ventilators, but now we don't. And now what do we need? And so there's a little bit of um, there's a little bit of that chaos. But I think it, the, the this is another area where there's just not a, a ton of space between the two candidates. They both, but they have different they have different reasons for wanting it. But I think they're pretty close on where it is. Um, so I think it's going to. The, the, the election won't have as much of an impact on that. But again, the shift to economic recovery is really going to be where the rubber is going to hit the road on that. Jake, your thoughts on the economic nationalism piece? Yeah, I just want to add that I think I love America the most. <laughs> uh, I, I also think, I mean, that, uh, uh, everything Chelsea said was, was, was absolutely right. And I also think, um, you know, on the campaign side of this and on the rhetoric, it, it's also what, what does that mean, right? What does is, what is Buy America mean to you? It means something different if you're in Ohio or Iowa or upstate New York, right? And so I think working through some of what those things are, but I, I've seen the polling, it's incredibly popular. Um, but then if you tell people they have to pay a little more or they're gonna pay a lot more, right? There's some, some sticker shock, um, but all of this goes into whatever recovery looks like, you know, when that happens. And, and I do think, um, you know, Joe Biden's experience with the stimulus uh, under Obama in 2009 and sort of what some of that looked like I think they've been, maybe not entirely frank, but I think that they've accepted that they missed some of this, right? And they missed some of the manufacturing and, and the impact on workers and um, you know what some of those things look like, but I, I think it's here to stay. And can I just add one thing to that? I think one of the inherent tensions that we're seeing is in a, you know, in the case of a Biden administration is some of the some of the uh, manufacturing and things that have left 
a big part of that is, is um, environmental concerns, right? It's because we can't, we don't make it or we can't get, you know, approval for things. So that's going to be a real tension, I think, for Biden in particular to, to kind of thread that needle between his very progressive wing that wants the Green New Deal and, and wants, um, you know, to have very aggressive, um, you know, caps put in place, whatever it is. And how do we do that and bring some of that manufacturing back, knowing that there might be that trade-off? Sure, sure. And Doug, on the on the economic nationalism piece, there's been, you know, you know, Canada has had its its own, but but some of it you could argue was was forced. It was a it was a tit for tat. We're going to do the uh, the, the tariffs on steel. Okay, well we're going to put tariffs on motorcycles and and things. So, uh, you know, how do you see it from from here? Well, the I mean, economic nationalism is is a problem. Um, we are much more of a trading nation than the United States, simply given our scale. Um, in terms of buy American or buy local, um, immediately short term, not, I don't think it has a huge impact on Canada because if you look at what we actually sell to the United States, it's oil and gas. You can, yeah, you can track all you want, but you're still going to need to, to import. Um, second is vehicles and the components and the assembly vehicles is so integrated in North America, trying to rip out a larger US component of that, I think is going to be a challenge. Our third biggest export to the United States is machinery and equipment, a lot of it being components and electronics, but that's 7%. So, you know, unless that is involved with, um, uh, you know, that's affected by Buy American, and I don't think it, you know, it may be at the margin, but in terms of having a real impact on the Canadian economy, it's not. And then as you go down the list into things like precious metals, into wood and lumber, into agricultural, finished agricultural products and so on, I think less susceptible to that kind of um, uh, pressures. But it does mean that uh, for infrastructure product projects, um, we do agreements and uh, actually the agreement that we have with the European Union allows them to bid on projects in Canada because we have reciprocity to a higher degree than what uh, the new NAFTA provides. So they will be more competitive in Canada than say a US firm might be. And the biggest thing within Canada is that unlike the United States is that there's a lot of provincial barriers. So before we start talking about by Canadian, it's actually a lot of by Quebec, by BC, by Alberta. Um, we are much more fragmented in terms of our local economies than you are in the States. And, and so that's, a, that's an issue that we're constantly playing with. And we've talked about that with the Niagara wine wineries as well as being able to, yeah. being able to uh, I suppose, export out of Ontario to other yeah. provinces, yeah. Um, I had a, a question come in on the on the chat that's kind of a niche question. So there's 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 not pressure on you to answer. I just want to throw out to see if anybody can answer it. Um, uh, we wanted to discuss the 201 investigation on blueberries and other produce and how that can affect out of season supplies, um, which will have significant uh, effect on Canada and Mexico. Is that is that a topic that any of you uh, uh, could weigh in on? No. No expertise. Not off the top of my head. 
Okay. Happy to All right. I know we'll, what blueberries are. Does that help? <laughs> They're delicious. Yeah. So we will. We can. We can talk about that one offline because I bet there's some folks on the call that could, uh, or on the in the in the audience here that could. Uh, that could offer some expertise on that. So um, let me move on to my, uh, my more prepared questions. Um, I am not gonna ask any of you to pontificate on what's gonna happen with COVID. However, within 90 days, one of these two candidates are gonna have to deal with whatever's on the table at the time. Um, how do you see each candidate's approach to revitalizing the economy, digging into this record national debt and, uh, you know, and, and using trade to do it? Maybe Chelsea, you want to start on that? Sure. I think that if you have a Biden administration, the record debt, one of the ways he deals with that is is rolling back tax cuts. Um, he's talked very specifically about Americans who make more than $400,000 a year are going to have their taxes raised and just no bones about it. He's also talked about some of the corporate tax um, the tax breaks that were put in place in 2017 under the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act um, and letting those expire. Um, there's a lot of talk about whether it's, you know, t depending on your audience, right? It's tax loopholes or it's special treatment or whatever. But I think there's going to be a lot of focus on, on using the tax code to encourage, encourage um, investment in the United States but also to, there's not going to be, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of tax cuts. I think that's how that he'll approach it. With, if it was a second Trump administration, I think that there's, there's more of the same. It's, you know, we're going to continue to, we're gonna to continue to um, do whatever's necessary. We're going to keep taxes low because that generates jobs. I think that the real challenge is going to be the amount of debt is so staggering that it's almost hard to get your arms around it. And one of the challenges that either candidate is going to face is you have members of Congress, particularly on the, on the Republican side, who will not vote for anything that spends more money because the debt is, is so high. So you automatically have this subset of Congress that is not going to be with you no matter what. That, that means on a stimulus, that means on just regular you know, defense spending, whatever the case may be. So the, the way that they're going to have to strike that balance, um, whether it's a Trump administration or a Biden administration, I don't think that we know what that looks like. I think we're, it's going to be a very, um, a very difficult kind of row to hoe. But I will say, I think if you have a, a Biden administration, I'd be interested, you know, Jack, if you disagree, I think that there's going to be a, a big surge focus on economic recovery at the beginning. So I think there will be less concern about the debt in the, in the immediate term and more on the kind of a surge kind of, uh, you know, approach, but then there's going to be that reckoning that comes with it. Jack, you want to take that segue? Yeah, I, I um, entirely agree. I think if, if uh, Joe Biden is president, you're going to see that debt um, really pile up um, because um, right. We can talk all we want about rescinding some of these tax breaks and, um, I did think, uh, I, I don't know how many of you saw this morning, but the uh, rapper uh, 50 Cent said he's going to be 20 cent if, uh, the, if Joe Biden's tax plan goes through. Um, but I, I think you are going to see that spending. And I think you're going to see spending and investment in things like manufacturing, but a lot of infrastructure, a lot of 
you know, buildings, a lot of as, as much of that as you can, as, as Chelsea said, is sort of a, you know, a front loaded uh, stimulus here. Especially if there's a Democrat Senate. Good, right. Right. Yeah, you can pretty much double the number if, if it's a Democratic Senate. And Doug, kind of same same question, to a different perspective is is you know watching what's obviously the Canadians have their views on what's happening in the U.S. with COVID, um, up to and including these border extensions, which are, as of yesterday go out another month, um, which which you know other parts of the country don't see the same way as we do. But uh, what what are your thoughts and what are you what are you what are you looking at on uh, uh, when it comes to, to COVID going into the next uh, presidential administration? That's a question I would be in a much better position to answer maybe a year or two years from now. Um, different governments around the world are taking different approaches. Um, the U.S. government has sort of leaned to the early reopening model to keep the economy sort of on a, on a higher uh, level. Um, other countries, Canada perhaps to some degree, has taken a more harsher approach. So, you know, get the pain done and over with now. Um, I'm not sure which is going to be successful. But to get to the point of the other panelists, regardless, we all both governments have really spent a lot of money, you know, to keep the economy from completely cratering. That support is going to be is going to have to continue until such time as we actually get a sustained recovery. Um, we have a slight advantage in Canada is that we went into COVID with uh, the lowest uh, combined provincial and, and federal debt of all the GDP countries. So we had a little bit more wiggle room in terms of uh, you know, the money that we could spend. But again, if you're looking, you know, continuing current policies a year, two years out, we're gonna be up there, you know, sort of in Japanese levels of uh, national debt. I guess the other thing is the response that the American government takes to financing COVID will have a ripple effect here in Canada. So one of the things that uh, hurt the Canadian economy in terms of attracting foreign investment, foreign companies coming in and using Canada as a base, as opposed to the U.S., were the uh, Trump tax cuts. You know, Canada did not follow suit. And so from corporate taxation perspectives, the Canada became relatively less attractive as an investment destination to set up a business, establish employment here, than the United States. To the extent that that's rolled back or partially rolled back, uh, that's obviously going to make Canada more attractive. Individual taxation, it, it's, uh, I don't think, makes a whole lot of difference. Um, but it's really the corporate taxation and the policies that whatever administration comes in uses to revitalize the U.S. economy. That's obviously going to have a major effect on us, both in terms of demand for the current products that we're doing, but also in terms of uh, the attractiveness of Canada as a destination for uh, foreign companies coming in. Thanks, Doug. Uh, so we're coming up on the on the end of the hour, and we're gonna I'm gonna start to to wind down. If anybody has any other questions, you want to pop into the chat, go ahead and do so. Um, but uh, I, I want to really thank all three of you for for um, uh, the I'd say the courage for going on and to giving a public statement on this because I can almost guarantee that while we were sitting here, something happened that changed what we were talking about. Um, yeah, keep your Twitter feed open all the time. Right, right. Yeah, don't watch Twitter while we're uh, while we're actually running the the panel here. But I, I guess I'd like to close with um, 
asking each of you to kind of sum up your biggest takeaway from today and maybe what do you think uh, the trade community should be watching over the next uh, the next couple of weeks leading up to election day? Maybe Jack, do you want to you want to start that? Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I think that the trade community is probably like the rest of us, and they, they really just need to hold their breath for the next two weeks. Um, or, or I'm more concerned that you know it might be a couple of weeks after that while we're while we're counting votes. Um, but but I think um, I think you said it well. I think one of the important questions earlier was what what can we expect, right? We have we have four years of, of President Donald Trump. Um, you know we have uh, uh, we keep hearing forty seven years of uh, Joe Biden's public life to kind of look at, and so I I think we know where both of these things will go. Um, um, people have to make up their own minds, but a lot of us believe that having some certainty and having a process in place would be, would be good for business, right? And, and knowing what to expect over the next year, two years, you know, and having that be move in sort of a rational way and having that certainty, you know, is a great opportunity for businesses. Thanks, Jay. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go on. I'm gonna I'm gonna break up the U.S. and Canadian perspectives here. Doug, you wanna you wanna take on that last thing? What are, what are we watching over the next two weeks? Um, again, when it comes to U.S. like Canada U.S. trade policy and approaches, there are some differences sectorally, but in general, it's going to carry forward. The economies are integrated. That's going to carry forward. I think one thing that would be welcome on this side of the border is a little bit more reliability. And a little bit more predictability as to what is going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen a week from now, um, and how that's going to be impacted. But otherwise, I think the, the bigger issue is um, how we both handle COVID, how, how we get out of this, and then what kind of investments we're making in the economy post-COVID, because it's pretty clear that certain industries, cruise lines, travel, that sort of thing, are likely to be in a prolonged slump. Other industries, like including Zoom, who I wish I was a shareholder of, uh, and, and the whole entire digital, as well as the uh, working from home, is going to be very, very strong. Um, I guess the ones, if we have to pick a, two sectors that we're looking at, the first would be uh, oil, um, you know, depending which side gets in. In oil, global demand is down about 10%. Under Biden administration and more green policies, that may come back slower. And as Canada is sort of the marginal producer and price taker, could have a very big impact on Alberta and Newfoundland, uh, their, their provincial economies. Um, and the second is just you know, overall demand. You know, um, we sell the bulk of our exports to the United States. If demand is healthy there, if it's rising there, Canadian companies are able to share in that. Excellent, thanks Doug. And then Chelsea, we'll finish up with you. Your thoughts on uh, what are what are what, what should we be watching up until election day? And yeah, I mean, I think yeah, we've lived. I think just because of COVID, we've lived in a little bit of a you know a state of suspended animation for a lot of this year in a lot of different ways, and that suspended animation is going to continue. I think for the next couple of weeks, barring some you know huge surprise that we we don't see coming. Um, I think the thing that I'm watching is how, how quickly and, and in what way does either a second Trump administration or a first Biden administration shift kind of from COVID relief to 
recovery and resilience. There's, there's a difference between, okay, we're just getting through what we're doing, you know, trying to get through day to day, but then it's, okay, how do we recover, rebuild the economy? How do we protect against this? And I think that trade is absolutely just intimately tied into that, whether it's, you know, like Doug was talking about, is there going to be um, as much cross-border travel or, you know, are folks from Toronto going to be trying to spend the winter in Florida in the future, or are they going to just completely change their habits? What does that actual recovery phase look like? And that's where, you know, we'll be watching for our clients. Are those patterns that, that they planned their business around, you know, are those patterns forever changed? And if so, how do we make that, how do we make a transition there? Or are they, are they going to come back in, either the same or stronger. So I think as the, as the economy of the United States in particular shifts to recovery, you know, where do you fit in that mix? That's, I think that's what we're going to be watching most closely. Well, thank you to all three of you for, uh, for doing this, for joining us today, for um, offering your insights. Uh, thanks to everybody that, that joined us. Our next event is on Thursday, November 12th. It's our annual meeting uh, and report to members. Uh, very pleased that uh, Adam Pratt, who many of you know from CRX Fastening, Fastening Solutions, is our is our keynote speaker. Fast-growing company, great story. We're looking forward to hearing from him. We'll also uh, we'll also talk about um, World Trade Center Buffalo Niagara in the past year with our organization. And I, I will tell you, I can't wait to dig into that speech. That's going to be a fun one. Uh, so uh, thank you again, everyone. We hope to see you on the 12th and uh, appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thanks for the Thank invitation. You. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.